We've been in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Lord willing, I underscore that, we will finish chapter 3 today. Uh, We began by looking at uh, Nicodemus, and we're still in the discourse where, where Jesus and Nicodemus have this amazing interaction where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and, and we've discussed all of that, and how Jesus said there's this new thing that's got to take place in order for you to have anything to do with God. He talks about this new birth, and, uh, and we discussed that at length, and then uh, last... <laughs> Francis, your pocket is laughing. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, last week, we looked at... Uh, probably the most pa- famous passage in all of scripture, and it's John three sixteen. looked at 25 words. And uh, I mentioned, you know, that the more we know about something, the harder it is to distill it down into a very simple statement and how God in his sovereign will by his spirit, when he anointed John to write this, really boiled the whole message down into one verse. We see God's plan, his purposes, and his method for salvation, for redemption, for purchasing our souls back from the jaws of hell in one verse. And uh, we looked at that. We took the the verse apart, uh, you know, shared with you. I'm a a take it apart kind of guy. Take it apart, put it back together, take it apart, put it back together, take it apart till it doesn't probably go back together real well because it's broken now. But uh, I just love boiling things down. And and God has made that easy for John 3.16. And as we move forward from there, we're going to take a look at um, light and darkness uh, beginning this morning. We'll move on into the the testimony of John the Baptist, the final testimony of John the Baptist and God's word uh, from there. Uh, But Here in chapter 3, verse 18, beginning in verse 18, we see that Jesus is continuing to answer Nicodemus. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He was really struggling. Remember, Jesus told him, he said, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, you don't receive my testimony, how are you going to understand if I tell you heavenly things, if I tell you spiritual things, intangible things? And he goes on, he talks about the snake on the pole and all that from back in Leviticus, and he gives them a tangible example of this intangible new birth that has to take place. And so here Nicodemus has said, well, I don't understand. He says, well, forget about trying to understand, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. But let me explain to you what the nuts and bolts of this is, how this is, this dynamic, this new dynamic that's coming about. Because they were still under law. They were still under the Old Testament Mosaic law at this time. And their whole understanding of God, remember we talked about how the Pharisees had had totally perverted that and ended up with volumes and volumes and volumes of lists of obedience for the people to obey. And if they didn't, then they didn't have righteousness because, and it's something for Western mindset, guys, in our Western mindset, we don't understand the importance of righteousness, but God does because he's the embodiment of righteousness. We talked about he is a person last week, everything he does is right. And and that without righteousness, you can't get into heaven. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've been told but I'll tell you, you've been told, but I'll tell you. And then he says, therefore, you must be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. There's two ways to get to heaven. You can either be perfect in every conceivable way, which the law as a ministry of condemnation, as the ministry of death, shut men up under sin. Or you can simply believe in me. And that's what he's talking about here. It's by simple faith. It's not a complicated deal. This isn't 
highfalutin theological stuff, guys. It's really simple. Simply trust Christ with your life and you're saved. It's that easy. But it's so easy. Here, Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, this guy that had this huge education and was one of the muckety-mucks in Jerusalem and in Israel at that time, part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling 70 elite in that day, didn't get it. And he still wasn't getting it. Uh, As we get into this passage of the scripture, after he's talked about uh, the new birth and, and that how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would simply believe wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. It's interesting, it was, as we look at this, I came across a quote yesterday, uh, and it's, it, it's this. There is none so blind as he who will not see. Think about it. We, in our society, we deal with this a lot. Probably the most popular or common uh, aspect of looking at this is in a uh, sort of a secular way. We talk about somebody who's an alcoholic being in denial. Okay, uh, if I don't, if I so don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem, then I'm just going to na 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 na. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to look at it because if I look at it, then I have to acknowledge there's a problem. If I have to acknowledge there's a problem, then I have to do something about it. And what Jesus is talking about here is spiritual blindness. In the same way that an alcoholic might be in denial, and it's one of the the tenets of of AA, is is for people to come out of denial to be able to actually acknowledge their condition in a much broader sense, because that actually that whole thing started out as an evangelical outreach. I'm not sure if you know that. And it sort of got filled with water as time went on to where God can be like a, a doorknob or whatever, the higher power that they discuss. And I'm not putting them down. They get people sober. But there's a whole lot more to life than walking around spending the rest of your life not drinking. So not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that it's incomplete. Okay? But the point is, is that men spend their lives in denial. What Jesus is talking about here, when he talks about people not believing, when he talks about people who are blind, when he talks about people who like darkness, it's because they are choosing darkness. They are choosing denial. I don't want to acknowledge that God's there, and we deal with it all the time, guys. You're talking to somebody, their eyes glaze over. It's about that time I usually stop talking because I realize I'm talking to a wall. But you're talking to somebody, their eyes glaze over, and, and, and you realize you've lost them. They've gone into this whole thing of, you know, you've just hit on something because if they acknowledge that they have sin in their life, Oh my gosh, I don't want to deal with that. Oh, that, I don't believe that, Jesus. And you get this whole smokescreen instead. That's what Jesus is dealing with here as he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says in verse 318, he says, He who believes in him is not condemned. Remember, he said, if you don't believe, you'll perish. In 16, he says, But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Interesting. A common mistake, and, and those of you who have been Christians for a while have seen it or even walked in it, and God has corrected it, is for us to walk around and see other people who are sinning and think, oh my gosh, look at how that person's acting. Well, they're just being faithful to their nature. And I'm not making an excuse. I'm not endorsing sin. I'm just saying, can we expect anything different? He's not talking about all of that is what will keep you out of heaven. He's saying that 
The only thing that will keep someone out of heaven is to simply not believe. To simply not come to a place of saying, you know what, I'm taking the blinders off because I've allowed the God of this world to blind my eyes and I'm going to take a really good look at this. I've seen accounts over the years uh, with uh, some pretty famous guys that have written books and all that where they started out, their whole crusade to start out was to disprove the gospel. And they get to a point in their study that they go, oh my gosh, this stuff's really true. And, and they end up converting to Christ because uh, I think Dave Hunt was one and another was, uh, I can't remember, was another guy. But the point is, is that that's what happens when you really take an honest, serious look. And I would encourage you, if you're a Christian here this morning, and most of us are, if not all, is, is take these things to heart, not because they're important for you, because that transaction's done, that's taken place. But they might be very important to that person that you know, perhaps work with, perhaps one of your children, perhaps one of your, you know, for those people in the sphere of influence in your life. These are critically important matters. Life and death. Do you really believe that? Life and death. Seriously. Life and death matters. So that you know these things, that you've gone through the Gospel of John before, don't just, you know, I, I just picture pulling a chain on a lamp. Just turn off the light. I don't, yeah, I'll snooze through the rest of the message this morning. Don't do that. Understand that God's will is for us to have a deep understanding of these things, even though they're very simple, they're very deep so that he can find us useful in reaching people around us. So it's not because of a sinful life that will be condemned, is what Jesus says here. He says simply, it's, it's a life of, of willfully rejecting me. That's it. That is what will send someone, that will commit someone's soul to hell. Uh, and, and we like to sort of think that God grades on a curve. That person's really, really bad, and that person's not so bad. We'll talk about that as we go. He says in verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Interesting. He uses the word he in verse 18 and he uses the word men in verse 19. He doesn't say Jew. Remember, he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus thought that he was in. He was trying to figure out what's this rabbi from Galilee talking about here? I don't understand all this stuff. But he really thought that he was in, and Jesus has basically just shredded this guy's theology. He shredded it. And, and so now, here's Nicodemus still wondering, how can these things be? And Jesus says, look, if you don't believe in the work that I'm doing, essentially, if you don't believe in that which I'll accomplish, it, referring to the cross, then you're not in. You are not part of it. And he's not talking about Jew or Gentile here. He's using a generic sense of, of who he's addressing. He's talking about people in general. And, and for the Jew, that would be a hard thing to grasp because they thought that, you know, that they were the elite and the Gentiles, I mean, they were referred to in their day as dogs. I mean, they didn't have a high opinion of people that weren't Jews. And now somebody from a, a Gentile could convert to Judaism, but Judaism was the thing as far as a relationship with God goes at, in those days. So Again, these things that Jesus is saying are radical to Nicodemus' mind. The other thing that's interesting is in verse 18, he uses the word believe three times. Remember we talked about that? It's almost 100 times in the Gospel of John. So how important is this believe that he's talking about? We've talked about it before. It's a verb, okay? Remember, remember high school English? A verb denotes action, 
okay? He's not talking about an adverb. He's not talking about a pronoun or a noun. He's talking about action. This is the kind of belief that James talks about in his epistle, the brother of Jesus in the book of James, where he says, you show me your faith, or show me your faith and I'll show you my works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. Talked about that with the men yesterday morning. So he's talking about this condemnation. He says, this is the condemnation. Because he says, if you're condemned, okay, what is the premise of this condemnation? Well, he says in verse 19, the the light has come into the world. Who's he referring to? Himself. We see it in chapter 1, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, he's not talking about a physical light. Again, these are spiritual terms that he's relating to Nicodemus in, in, in physical terms, but they are spiritual in nature. He's talking about the illumination of a man's soul. He's talking about spiritual illumination, how God illuminates himself to us. We've talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about it some this morning. But that's the premise that he's talking about. He's talking about light, that Jesus came with the light of God. And the light was from the Holy Spirit. And we're talking about a really interesting dynamic here. We're going to look at another passage here in a minute. He says in verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds Things you do should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done or wrought in God. I want to look at six contrasts from these verses. Uh, The first is in verse 18. He talks about he who believes versus he who doesn't believe. He who believes is not condemned, and he who doesn't believe is condemned already. That, in other words, that condemnation, that nature of Adam has never been removed, has never been dealt with. And so that's why in Ephesians 2, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago at Christmas time. That's why he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, meandered according to the course of this world. You see, this all fits together, folks. So the first is he talks about not being condemned versus being condemned, being dead spiritually and being alive. And it all hinges on whether or not you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he did. That's all it is. It's one or the other. Do you see why it's so clear there is no fence sitting? Oh, that person, they're kind of on the fence with God. No, they're not. No, they're not. There is no fence. You're either on one side or you're on the other side. And it's our job because God has given us, and if you're a Christian here this morning, you have a ministry. Oh, I do? Oh, (laughs) yeah, we all do. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation to reconcile a fallen world to ourselves, or to him, not to ourselves, but to him. It's our job in that sense as people who are walking in the light to bring that light, the light of God, to a dark world. And it's a world that wants to live. You know, it's an active thing. It says that men love darkness more than they love light. He doesn't say men sort of hang out in darkness. He says they love darkness. That's an active thing. That's an active choice. I want darkness is what he's saying. The second thing that we see here, uh, that it's light 
and darkness. It's a, it's a light and a darkness of the soul. Again, we sin because we're sinners, okay? We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. It's, the, it's our nature outside of Christ. It's just what we do. Thoughts, words, and deeds, folks. That's the basis of God's judgment in each of us prior to Christ. Store up wrath by the things we think, the things we say, and the things we do. Out and inside Christ, in Christ, we can still act in a carnal manner. Uh, talked about it with the guys yesterday morning, how we're under grace, and so that's not going to count against us as far as salvation goes, but we will suffer loss, and we will not in- get the blessing of walking in the light. We can choose to walk in darkness. We can choose to walk in disobedience. We can choose to blow off what God wants to do in our lives. But everything's visible to him. And he says, simply walk in the light as I'm in the light. That's what he says in 1 John. The third contrast we see here is in verses 20 and 21. He talks about the person who practices evil versus the person who is doing the truth. Interesting. He talks about deeds, right? That his deeds are evil. And then he talks about the person who practices. Now, my doctor practices medicine. And sometimes I thought, yeah, that's why they call it practice. But he practices medicine. He, that means that's what he does. But he says, he who does the truth In other words, that's just an outflow of this relationship, this new birth that takes place. It's no longer based on my deeds. See, our whole lives, it's performance-based acceptance from birth. You know, you go potty, I give you an (laughs) M&M. That's where it starts. (laughs) You don't think that babies are falling? Take a bottle away. Right, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me we don't have a fallen nature. I'm just glad they're not bigger. You know, it's like, you know, or whatever. But the point is, that's our default position. An unregenerate world. That's why we look in the paper, we look online and see the news, and it's like there's this death and mayhem all around us all the time. And it gets depressing and discouraging if you just pay attention to that. I'd encourage you, if you're a news junkie, and I have been at various times, and I call it news junkie, (laughs) Nicholas is... Yeah. Try to balance that with spending time in the Word. Truly, yeah, right on. Because I'll tell you what, when I have just simply not been as disciplined as I could be, and I'm spending time just looking at the news, looking at the news, looking at the news, it's discouraging, it's depressing. I get angry. I don't like the injustice of it all. But I have to spend time in God's Word because I have to balance what I'm seeing. I have to be able to be built up because that stuff will tear me down. Just some free advice. So there's this practicing evil versus doing the truth. And then in verse 20 and 21 also, he talks about hidden deeds being exposed. They love darkness rather than light, lest their deeds would be exposed. But for the person who has come to faith, for the person who believes... He says that his deeds are clearly seen. He's out in the open. He doesn't care. He's doing what God set before him to do. Right on. Praise the Lord. I mean, and hold up a mirror, folks. It's not your righteousness that counts here. It's his. And when somebody, I'll tell you, I remember years ago, my brother Jim's here, and he'll remember his worship leader at the Calvary Chapel he's in. uh, I was talking to him at a men's retreat one time, and he said, John, you know, what do I do? He said, 
you know, when I was in the world and I was playing secular music, I was in a band, you know, and, and the whole thing was about being seen. And uh, so now I'm just kind of struggling. This is like 20 some years ago. He's, he's been a faithful worship leader for many years. Um, hi, Jamie. <laughs> anyway, uh, but the point is, is, he said, you know, what do I do? We're at a men's retreat. And I said, you know what I do, Jamie? I, I have this imaginary mirror. It's like about this big. And when somebody says, hey, great job or good message or whatever, I know it's God's work in me. And I, I will thank them because I want to be polite. But I know it's not me. It's him working in me. And so I reflect that glory to him. You praise the Lord. Praise God that he spoke to you. Praise God that he opened your heart on that. Praise God for whatever it is, see. He doesn't want us to take the glory. He wants the glory. He deserves the glory. I don't. I'm just a delivery boy. And, and what was weird was 20 years later, Jamie told me, he said, you know, I never forgot that, John. Thanks for sharing that with me. I said, you're going to make me do it, aren't you, Jamie? Praise the Lord. <laughs> Held up the mirror for him. At any rate, so in the world, or, or with the guy that wants to walk in darkness, he wants to hide his deeds. He doesn't want anybody to see how evil, because, you know, when I did jail ministry, I used to ask guys all the time. I, I'd have 40, 50 guys come into this big room where I was doing jail ministry, and I'd say, I want you to raise your hand if you didn't know that what you were doing that landed your rear end in here was wrong. Raise your hand. I never had one guy raise his hand. Now, they, would, they were always innocent with their lawyer or with the judge, but we know in our hearts, don't we? when what we're doing or we're engaged in or what we've done or what we've said, we know it's wrong. We know. Yeah. God's faithful. The point is, for the natural man, he wants his deeds to be hidden. For the spiritual man, he says, you know what, bring it on. I just want to see Jesus glorified in my life. Period, end of story. The fifth thing, or the sixth thing here is in verses 19 and 21, he talks about deeds being rooted in evil, in darkness, versus deeds that have been wrought or brought to the light. The things you do. God sees it all. You know, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't be like the, the Pharisees. Stand on the street corner and let everybody know you're fasting. You know, gaunt face, Look like you're really, really hungry. Very, very spiritual man I am. He says, no, hogwash. Don't do that. Well, that's my insertion, hogwash. <laughs> Jesus didn't say hogwash, I promise you. But it is hogwash. He says, don't practice your, righteous, practice your righteousness in front of men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you don't have any reward with your Father who's in heaven. Pretty much, you, you got noticed. That's your reward. That's it. Because that one didn't go in the file. So... But the condemnation is basically, you don't believe. And it, we live in a, a world that more and more is unbelieving in this post-Christian era. And you know what? Since the time I came to Christ, what, 35 years ago, I, it was still, it was right at the end of the Christian era. And I believe that we are in the post-Christian era. Does that mean that we're without hope? No, it just means that, just like Jesus said, towards the end of the age, and we are at the end of the age, things were going to get dark. But the interesting thing, and I've mentioned it before, folks, is that as things get darker, by default, your light, my light, shines brighter. 
And that's a great thing. Why do people walk in darkness? Because they want to. Straight up. People love darkness. It's just like Jesus said. I remember one time having a couple in my office that I was counseling and they were having a lot of troubles. And don't get me wrong, this is years ago and I haven't said it to anybody here. <laughs> but they just were going on and on. And I would ask questions and, uh, and they would answer. And I finally, at one point, I just sensed the Holy Spirit sharing, telling me I just needed to be very honest. And I said, you want to know what you guys' problem is? You like where you're at. And they were shocked. They got convicted and repented, which was good. I mean, that was the Lord. But it was really a time for just kind of a, a come to Jesus moment. You know what I mean? It was like, you know what? You really like where you're at. You'll stop having problems in your marriage if you stop liking where you're at. Wanting to have your way. Making sure this baby runs your way and not have any room for the other's way. The Bible tells us only by pride comes contention. There contention in your house? I'll, I'll guarantee you it's rooted in pride. Every time. That's free. <laughs> so by this point, Nicodemus is probably, oh, he's got a whole head full of things to go back and think about, believe me. I mean, this stuff was so radical to his thinking. It was so far off from anything he had ever heard. And this is it's pretty much the end of what Jesus has to say to him. But I think it's interesting because I'll bet you, I mean, you see the epilogue sort of of Nicodemus' life. He's there at the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember, we talked about that. Brings a hundred pounds of expensive spices uh, for his body, for preparation for his body for burial. I mean, I truly believe that we'll see him there. And I believe that from this moment forward, his life was absolutely changed. Absolutely changed. He goes to Jesus' defense He's there at his burial. Nicodemus, I believe, through these events, came to faith. And that he was never the same again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't have it in my, in my notes up on the, the screen. I want to spend a, a little bit of time and, and a couple of passages in 2 Corinthians as we talk about this light and darkness thing. There's some interesting things that go on in the Old Testament that Paul talks about in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing his second letter to this church at Corinth, a a little town in Asia Minor, and um, about 50 miles to the west of Athens, Greece. It was down along the bottom. Anyway, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there. In verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at this. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, when he's talking about, therefore, we have such hope, he has just finished outlining saying, you know, the ministration of death, the law of Moses, if there was glory to be found there, because he talks about Moses here, then how much more glory will there be with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? And again, I'm paraphrasing, just for, for interest in saving time, I'd love to go through the whole thing. And I thought at one point I was going to, and I decided, I just need to keep the momentum here in the Gospel of John. But I do want to make a couple of points out of here. So he says, therefore, and when you see therefore, you say, what's it therefore? And you usually, you go backwards. And just giving you a a brief illustration of what's behind that, he's talking about the difference between the ministry of law, which was death, and condemnation. He says it right there. 
and the ministry of the Spirit, which is life and light. <laughs> he says, we use great boldness in our speech. Um, so the hope he talks about, having such hope, he's talking about the glory of the new covenant. And it, it increases by contrast because in the old covenant, he says here, unlike Moses in verse 13, he says, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. He's talking about Exodus 34. Moses goes up. He's in the presence of God up on the mountain, up on Mount Sinai. If you remember the story, those of you who are Bible students, you remember that story well. He goes up. He comes down. His face is glowing. He has the light of God. He has the glory of God, and he's wearing it on his face. Only one problem. He does not have the Holy Spirit. Everything is external in the Old Covenant. Nothing is internalized until God fulfills that which he prophesied through uh, Jeremiah in chapter 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll do a new thing with the house of Israel. I'll write these things on the, the tablets of human hearts, not on tablets of stone. So Moses would come down, and every time he went up on the mountain, he would go up, he'd spend time in God's presence, and he would be glowing. He would, that, that Shekinah glory of God would just sort of rub off on him. He'd come down, but his face would cool off. And so he would put a towel on his face, and he'd wrap his face to conceal it, because it was kind of like, yeah, great, there goes the glory sort of a thing. And, and I'd love to teach on that more, but for lack of time, that's just to offer context to what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that there was a diminishing glory with Moses as he came down the mountain, as he came out of God's presence. He says, it's not like that, that we have with the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of the new covenant that we have because of the Holy Spirit being inside of us we have the light of men that was talked about in John chapter 1. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. That light now comes from inside of us and emanates outward. He says, in verse 14, he says, their minds were blinded, that the people didn't get it. He says, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. He's talking about there's a veil that lies over men's hearts, okay? Uh, and, and he says that this veil, he, he talks about it's, it's not tangible, but it might as well be because it just conceals, it, it insulates someone from being able to receive the truth of God. And this veil that lies over men's heart is there because they willfully allow it to go on. They willfully allow it to be there that their minds are blinded. They can't take in the things of God. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about this light and darkness thing with Nicodemus. Paul is expanding on it here many years later, many years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and he's talking about it to the people at the church at Corinth and saying, look, there's this light and darkness thing that you've got to understand. Just like what happened with Moses, it's different because now we have this ministry of the Spirit where we are increasing instead of Moses decreasing. He says in verse 13, it was passing away. In verse 14, he says their minds were blinded because the, the veil was there, but it was taken away in Christ. So what does blindness produce? Darkness. Simple. It's the darkness of a man's soul. If I choose to allow myself to be blinded, to allow the God of this world to blind my eyes, 
I am choosing to walk in darkness. I am loving darkness. That's what loving darkness looks like. What does God's presence bring? Light. Illumination. You know, if you've been a Christian, you know. You, I remember being a, an unbeliever, picking up the Bible and trying to read it, and it just was going blah, 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 blah. I couldn't make any sense of it at all. And yet with the Holy Spirit dwelling within, with the light of God emanating from within, he says the Spirit's job, and we'll talk about it when we get to that point in, in John chapter 14, I think it is, where he talks about the Spirit's ministry will be to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he will guide us into all truth. He is the one who reveals the truth of this word to us. And he'll glorify me. He'll look like me. A lot of stuff out there where people say is done under the auspices of the Holy Spirit does not look like Jesus, believe me. Because Jesus did not conduct the equivalent of a circus sideshow. A lot of garbage out there. Going on into 2 Corinthians 4, again, just going to hit a couple of uh, passages here to, to finish this, uh, looking at this light and darkness thing. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, now he's using wordplay from talking about Moses, this veil. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Just exactly what Jesus said. And whose minds, in verse 4, the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul expounds to the Corinthians exactly what Jesus is expounding to Nicodemus. He says, look, it's so simple. If you want to be blind, God will allow you to be blind. He will not violate your will. He does not violate the human will. And we could get into a lengthy discussion about predestination and about free will, and we could talk the rest of the day and probably for weeks on that. And, and that's one of those deals where I've mentioned before, and I'll just ask you what side you like for me to argue from, because both, there's, both are taught and both are true. But the point of that is, is that one falls apart without understanding the other. So we're not going to go there as far as that goes. Suffice it to say, God knows what's going to happen, who's going to choose him and who's not, but he still leaves it up to us. So if we choose blindness, guess what we get? Blindness. We can do that as Christians, folks. Warning. You can decide to cut and run. And God loves you. And Hebrews chapter 12 says, you know, if you belong to him and you cut and run, there's a very good chance you're going to end up at the woodshed with that. I have been chastised by God, knowingly chastised by God. I have been severely chastised by God in times past. And I praise him because his design in that is to restore the limb that's out of joint, that afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Because now I want to cooperate with the work of his spirit rather than kick against it. In the bulletin this morning, I don't know if you noticed, I have a passage to ponder down there. I had Acts chapter 26, verse 18. Paul is giving his testimony. He's sharing his testimony of how he was converted to Christ on that road to Damascus. Thrown off of his horse, blinded. And Jesus is talking to him and he says, look, 
I'm going to protect you from the Gentiles, the, the, the guys, the creeps who will try to get you, and the Jews, the ones who will try to get in your way. I will take care of that, Paul. I am sending you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's the whole thing again. This is a repetitive theme throughout the New Testament, guys. This isn't just Jesus in an isolated spot in the Gospel of John talking about light and darkness. It's all over the place. You either walk in the light or you walk in darkness. One or the other. You don't walk in the, you know, twilight, maybe kind of dusky. You know, it's not there. Yeah, I don't see that in any of these patterns. I, I, I searched out, just I chose a couple of passages really to, to use for this morning in talking about light and darkness because there are so many that deal with this. But purely, he wants us to understand there's no middle ground. You're either walking in the light as he is in light or you're walking in darkness. And as a Christian, you can do that. I don't believe that, that Satan can possess a Christian. I do not believe that. But I believe we can open ourselves up to demonic influence. I believe that we can try to, and it's something that makes me sad as a pastor uh, is when I see people who, it's, it's as though, and nobody's going to get up in the morning and say, hey, I think I'll see how close to the world I can live today. But people who decide they want to try to live this Christian life and see how close to the world they can live without stepping over, how close to the line can I go? You're flirting with disaster. Flirting with disaster. I've been there. Not proud of it. Flirting with disaster. Don't do it. Stay close to the Lord. Stay where he wants you to be. Stay usable. Stay pliable. Stay in a place where you're walking in the light. That's the point. He says in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, our Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Verse 6 is the point. He says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about Moses' face anymore. He's talking about Jesus. And the Bible tells us it's not I, that it's... It's not I, but Christ in me is my only hope for glory. And so that, that glory that increases, Paul goes on in Second Corinthians here and he says, you know, we are the absolute opposite of what, he, what God did with Moses where his face was cooling off, where the, the, the light was fading. He says, we increase from glory to glory. We are transformed from glory to glory. Metamorphos, we are changed and that's the process that he uses. It has to do directly with walking in the light. And it has to do directly with our cooperating with what he wants to do. I remember um, Stacy and I, where we moved from in far northern California, sort of central California, up behind the front line of the Cascades. Not unusual at all for it to be 10, 15 below on any given winter morning. And I was the one usually that got out of bed, and, and she did too, but, uh, and went and started the fire. We used wood heat. And, and there were those days that the fire would just take off with the first light, and, and you know, off it would go and you know, go make coffee. By the time it got back, it was actually warm. We had tile floors too. It was very cold. So, but there were also those days where it just seemed like I would light that thing, and I'd go, and I'd come back, and I'd be dead. 
and I'd light that thing again, and I'd go, and I'd come back, and it'd be dead. And I would do that a half a dozen times. The point's this. Sometimes the hardest people to reach are the guys that gave at the office, the people that stopped to help the little old lady, no offense to little old ladies, across the street, the people that do good things, the people that live moral lives, hard to see their need. They're like the person that has that bit of glory, that has that spark, but it never reaches critical mass because they never come to faith. So yes, good people are good people. And very often people in the world, because they lack the understanding that Jesus is bringing out, that the Apostle Paul brings out here, will say, you know, I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven. It's up to us to perhaps shed some light on that thinking, because if that's the case, then what you're saying, number one, is the cross wasn't enough. The cross wasn't enough, because if the cross is enough, then it's not based on me and what I do. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It's not based on what you do, whether it's good or evil. It's based on what I do. And you simply coming to faith to believe that. And it's like that fire that refuses to start. That person can do good deeds, do good deeds, do good deeds, do good deeds, but there's never critical mass. There's never a light that comes on in their soul. That's the difference. That's our job. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling a fallen world to him is done through simply showing people the lack in their life, even when they're good people. It's very hard often to reach people who are good, moral, upstanding citizens because they don't get it. They don't see. Here's Nicodemus, a guy that thought he was there, and he came up probably thinking he was going to have a theological discussion with Jesus and walk away feeling pretty good about where he was at. Guarantee it. He'd never heard any of this before. So it's not just a new birth. It's a new life. Back to the Gospel of John. We'll wrap this up here in the next few minutes. In uh, chapter 3, verse 22, where John the Baptist, he exalts, he elevates Christ. He he brings him up. There's some interesting interplay here that we'll cover uh, as we go along that I found fascinating. He says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now that's southern Israel, all right? There's Galilee, Samaria, Judea. Next week, Lord willing, chapter four, Jesus goes to Samaria in the middle of the country. And I'm really excited about that. The, the, the interaction he has with the woman at the well is just fabulous. And so, yeah, right now though, he's still, remember he's been down in Jerusalem for the Passover. He goes out now into Judea. Uh, Jerusalem's right on the edge of Judea. It's in the, actually in the, the land of Benjamin, at the southern edge of Benjamin. Judea is right there because Bethlehem, which is only about seven miles south where he was born, um, is in the land of Judea. So he goes actually to the east, probably to a little south and east, because he goes down onto the Jordan Rift where the water is, where the Jordan River is, because it says here in the dialogue that there's much water there. So he and his disciples come into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, chapter 4 says that it wasn't Jesus doing the baptizing, but his disciples. So, I mean, he was overseeing it. So John, he brings that out here, but then it's like he corrects that as he goes along in chapter 4. 
And in verse 23, he says, Now John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim, which is probably north of where Jesus was, uh, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Um, just a side note, says there was a lot of water there, and, and John was baptizing, and Jesus was baptizing. The Greek word is actually uh, an interesting term. It means to submerse. <laughs> Don't talk to me about water baptism being anything other than immersion. I just don't, I don't see it in the scripture. Um, and I'm not saying that God doesn't honor other forms of baptism. I'm just saying that it's, I don't believe that it's biblical for us to look at baptism in any other way than immersion. It's, it's very clear in the scripture, both in the original language and in the context of these passages. Um, just sidelight it, as I said. Verse 24, now John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Remember the Jews, the religious leaders. So religious leaders are coming up and they're wondering, okay, what's this baptism about? You know, we understand baptism. That's reserved for Gentiles. So if a Gentile wants to convert to Judaism, we baptize them, get them all washed off and ready for, for Judaism. That was sort of how they did it. And they did it with mikvahs. A mikvah was a, a ceremonial bath that the Jews used and it had to be living water. Uh, there had to be an inflow and an outflow. And, and so... Here's John out here in the river, and the river qualified as living water because it was flowing, okay? You just couldn't use stagnant water. It was a whole thing that they had uh, on that. So they come and they're, they're wondering, you know, what is this? They're, they want to discuss the nuances of John's baptism because John is essentially, his baptism was turning away people from their sin in preparation for the coming Messiah, Again, we've discussed that in the past, in, in uh, past study, uh, the difference between the baptism that we have and John's baptism. So they want to come and they're finding out. And so they came to John in verse 26 and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and in these five words, and all are coming to him. Like, are you scandalized? Everybody's going to this guy. You know, and John's, you know, his disciples are thinking, yeah, we're being faithful to, to our guy. And we're going we're gonna to tell what's going on with this Jesus character. And everybody's going to him. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever done that with you. And it, it, I love it. I, it. There's a point where the guys came to the Apostle Paul and they said, there's people out there doing this gospel thing that didn't come from us. And Paul's, he said, you know what? I don't care even what their motives are. Some preach Christ from selfish ambition. Some preach Christ. You know, he said, I, don't, I just rejoice that Christ is preached. And John uh, answers them in verse 27. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. He's saying, don't try to drag me into this. They're going to Jesus because the Holy Spirit is drawing them. And John has already said, he stated plainly, look, I have fulfilled my mission I am here to introduce Messiah, and that's it. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And he uses this opportunity to testify that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I'm really not, this doesn't bug me, you guys. I'm not bummed out about everybody going to Jesus. And I would imagine that they were kind of scratching their heads at that point because they came thinking that they had some pretty hot news. And John just throws it off. I love his attitude. He says in verse 29, we talked about, remember we talked about the first century wedding, the bridegroom and how 
what would happen when the bridegroom would go to pick up his bride. He'd go to get her after this long betrothal that the groomsman, the best man, would go before him and he would you know, blow a horn and shout for, and we looked at the comparison between that and First Thessalonians where we, we look at the rapture and all. But so here, John is citing the same language. He's using wedding language now. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled, is made full. He's saying, look, guys, I'm the best man. The bride doesn't go for the best man. The bride goes for the groom. Don't get this mixed up. And, and he's essentially using their, their language, language that they would understand, saying, look, I am not the bride. He's the one. So don't bug me with this. He's drawn, the bride is drawn to the groom, not the best man. And he says, this is actually, it's a, it's a confirmation of John's ministry, the way he's treating and dealing with all of this. He is basically saying, look, in verse 30, he says, I, he must increase, but I must decrease. My job's done. Messiah is on the scene. I prepared a people for receiving him. And now it's time for me to fade back and let him come forward. This is glorious. This guy, I mean, there's no ego in this. There's no, hey, look at me. I'm, <laughs> I'm the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, by the way. And he was. But he wasn't there to, to bring any glory to himself. He simply said, you know what? I got the privilege of being the best man. But he's the groom. And the bride is attracted to her groom. This is as it ought to be. In verse 31, he says, He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. And I believe that John inserts this in his gospel, this testimony of John the Baptist, because he's actually, he's, he's validating what he has already said about Jesus being the one who came from heaven. Remember, Jesus says, I came from heaven. You know, I'm the only one. I'm speaking heavenly things to you, Nicodemus. And so here, following that, John introduces corroborating evidence, as it is, to say, look, John the Baptist's testimony was the same as what I'm telling you. And so he's actually validating what he has already said about Nicodemus. He says, uh, Verse 32, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Saying the same thing, again, that John had to write about Jesus telling Nicodemus. He says, you don't receive, I'm telling you these things, Nicodemus, and you're not receiving it. You can't receive it. You're not there. You don't get it. And John's telling the same thing to the people that have come to sort of tattle on Jesus to him. He's saying, you guys don't receive it. I'm from the earth, he's from heaven. And, and he's trying to bring conviction to these guys. Not a bad idea. Because without conviction, without an awareness of sin, we're just going to keep doopty doing along if we have come to a place of allowing the God of this world to blind our eyes. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. I love this verse. Have you received his testimony? I have. And I certify to you that God is true. Every word. Every stinking word. Well, they're not stinking words. 
He's everything that he claims. <laughs> so, it reminds me here, in Matthew 16, Jesus, when he gives the guys the keys to the kingdom, you remember? Knowing that there was a wreck in their future. I love that, that whole passage. He's, he's telling these guys, you know, when he says, you know, whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth. And it, he says, shall be. But it, it's as though it's already taken place in heaven. I mean, that's the connection. Because the Holy Spirit's in it. Uh, don't need to reteach that. But he's basically charging these guys with the keys to the kingdom. He's saying, whatever you certify on earth is so. He's saying, your witness is true. And he's saying, I'm putting this trust in you as stewards of the kingdom of God. And we have the same ability, guys. We have the authority to certify that God is true. We have the authority to certify that everything that he says is true. By the Holy Spirit living within. If you're a Christian, you have the same authority that John the Baptist is, is, is exerting here. Uh, that you can certify. Yes, absolutely. I'm telling you the things that he says are true. There's not one word of this Bible that is in error. There's not one word that's not supposed to be there. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 34, For he whom, whom God sent has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. And Jesus had had the Holy Spirit without measure. Uh, there's a greater principle here for us that, you know, very often I hear people say, I want more of God. And, and I understand, and I'm not going to take anybody on about that. That would be silly, kind of childish. But truly, the moment of your conversion, you got all of God you're going to get. But it's like John the Baptist. The key is less of me. Because he has filled our account to overflowing with grace. He has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment on heaven. He has given us the ability to discern the things of God. He has brought illumination to our souls and driven the darkness back. Praise God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Not some things, all things. Here I see the deity of Jesus in verse 35 because they thought they were rejecting Jesus. And John, John, he's essentially saying to reject the Son is to reject God himself. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. Bold statement. True. Night and day, light and darkness. You're either walking in truth or you're walking in a lie. But the wrath of God abides on him because the wrath of God was already on these people. Jesus, remember, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. The world's already condemned. We live in a world of literally people that are dead men walking. Oh, let that burden your soul. Let that burden your heart. Let that drive you to being, not just saying I love what, uh, who, who was it that said, it, it, I, I, I witness all the time and sometimes I use words. Uh, it's one of the great theologians, I don't remember who it was. But it's true, but, but that my life would be a witness, that my life would be a light, that my life would be something that draws people to the truth of the gospel, of the glory of God. That's his will. 
That's what he designed us for. That's why he did not save us and immediately take us to heaven. There is work to do, folks. And I'm not putting a big burdensome work trip on anybody. I'm just saying there's work to do. Here we are, we're a little church in a town that's got a lot of churches. Don't be discouraged by that. Be encouraged by that. God loves little churches. He loves people that have a little bit of power. And he'll use us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gospel of John, uh, this, this account of Nicodemus' life, uh, the testimony of John here. As we look at these things, I just, I just get excited, blown away that you love us so much that even here, 2,000 years after these facts, that you would illuminate our souls with the truth of your word. Lord, let us not take that for granted. Let us be excited about the things of God. Let us be excited to reach out to be used as vessels for your will in bringing this gospel of the kingdom to those who are perishing. Let us walk in that as a, as a functioning, living reality in our lives, Father. Show us when to speak forth. Show us when to hold back. But especially, Father, let us walk in the great commandment because carrying out the, the great commission we know, Father, can't happen unless we're walking in love towards those others around us. So we commit ourselves afresh to you, Father. We pray you would work in us and through us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit living in us, bringing light to our souls. Thank you, Father. We praise you. We ask you to go before us this week and that your will would be done. In Jesus' precious name, amen.